For those of you who have been here throughout the, uh, you know, the, the last several months, you might have thought that uh, my last sermon back in May was the final in our series on the atonement, uh, but that is not so. There is yet more to say, more to study, more to consider and meditate on concerning the perfect work of redemption that Christ our Savior has accomplished on our behalf. And that, of course, has been the title for our series, O Perfect Redemption. And in it, I have sought to present to you Scripture's answer to the controversial question, For whom did Christ die? And as I've said a number of times before, we seek to answer this question of the extent of the atonement, not merely for controversy's sake, or because we're overly infatuated with arcane theoretical points of doctrine, but because the extent of the atonement is inextricably linked to the design and the nature of the atonement, to the gospel itself. We've seen that to whom the atonement extends is a function of what the atonement is and what the triune God intended to accomplish by the work of Christ on the cross. And those are matters of gospel significance. The doctrine of the extent of the atonement is intensely practical because it concerns the character of our God as the one who is absolutely sovereign, whose saving purposes can never be thwarted, and it concerns the virtue of Christ our Savior as the one who perfectly succeeds in accomplishing the salvation of his people. Not exactly marginal issues in the Christian life. And unfortunately, multitudes of Christians have been taught a doctrine of the extent of the atonement that strikes at the heart of those very realities. A universal atonement, an atonement in which Christ dies in the place of all people without exception, even those who are not finally saved, undermines the sovereignty of God. It suggests that God would save all people if he could, that he sent Christ to die so that everyone would have a possibility to be saved if they would only believe, but that the unbeliever's rejection of Christ thwarts the Father's designs to save them. But early on in our series, we learned that the intention of God in the atonement was not to make sinners savable or to make salvation possible. 1 Timothy 1.15 says that Christ Jesus came into the world, which means that the Father sent Christ Jesus into the world, quote, to save sinners. And so if God, if God's uh, always, if he always sovereignly accomplishes his intentions, and if his intention for the atonement was not to make provisions or possibilities, but actually to save then all those for whom Christ died must certainly be saved. And since not all are saved, we found that Christ's atonement is particular and not universal. We cannot consistently hold to a universal atonement without making God out to be a failed Savior. Powerless. Almighty God, powerless before the sovereignty of the will of mere mortals. Not only does the universal atonement strike at the sovereignty and wisdom of God, it also undermines the efficacy and value of the blood of Christ. 
It suggests that there are some whom Christ died to save who fail to come into possession of that salvation. That the precious blood of the God-man was insufficient to satisfy the wrath of God in the case of the many sinners who perish eternally under that wrath for their sins. When you universalize the extent of the atonement, without universalizing the extent of salvation itself and saying that it brings everybody to heaven, you empty the atonement of its inherent power to save, and you make the real, decisive, determinative cause of salvation something other than Christ and Him crucified. A.A. Hodge put it this way. He said, If the differentiating grace which distinguishes the believer from the unbeliever is to be attributed to any cause other than Christ's redemption itself, then that cause, and not his redemption, is the cause of salvation. What makes the difference between you if Christ has died for each one in, in like manner? The answer at that point is our response. And then the difference between believer and unbeliever is the believer and unbeliever. The cause for the believer's salvation is, is his faith rather than God's grace in Christ's death. And consider, we have considered, how this devalues the blood of Christ by suggesting that there are some for whom his blood was shed that can remain lost forever. I came by a passage in John Owen again this week, a heart-wrenching paragraph in his book, The Death of Death and the, in the Death of Christ, and uh, he, he writes this. He said, If Christ did so by them and lay out the price of his precious blood for them and then at last deny that he ever knew them, thinking of Matthew 7, Depart from me, I never knew you. Might they not well reply? And so here's the response of those whom, for whom Christ supposedly died, who he's going to give up unto eternal destruction at the end. They say, Ah, Lord, was not your soul heavy unto death for our sakes? Did you not for us undergo that wrath that made you sweat drops of blood? Did you not bathe yourself in your own blood that our blood might be spared? Did you not sanctify yourself to be an offering for us as much as for any of your apostles? Was not your precious blood by stripes, by sweat, by nails, by thorns, by spear poured out for us? Did you not remember us when you hung upon the cross? And now do you say you never knew us? Good Lord, though we be unworthy sinners, yet your own blood does not deserve to be despised. Why is it that none can lay anything of a charge to God's elect? Is it not because you die for them, Romans 8? And did you not do the same for us according to a universal atonement? Why then are we thus charged, thus rejected? Could not your blood satisfy your Father, but we ourselves must be punished? Could not justice content itself with that sacrifice? And we saw that 
over and over as we considered what Scripture teaches about the nature of the atonement. And we found that in every way that Scripture speaks of Christ's atoning death as an expiatory sacrifice that takes away sins, as a propitiation that satisfies God's wrath, as a reconciliation, a redemption, and most fundamentally as a penal substitution. In every way that the Bible talks about atonement, it insists on the fact that it is that it perfectly accomplishes everything it sets out to do and that it was accomplished on behalf of particular individuals whom God has chosen to save and not on behalf of all without exception. Expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, redemption, and substitution are all inherently efficacious and particular. And that means that none for whom Christ has accomplished these things can fail to be saved. The efficacy of the atonement implies the particularity of the atonement. And so a perfect redemption must be a particular redemption. But there's another aspect to the nature of the atonement that offers a significant argument for particular redemption, and it is, frankly, one of the most overlooked topics in the debate, and that is the high priestly ministry of Christ. We tend not to think about the atoning work of Christ in the context of his priesthood, but Scripture presents them as inextricably linked. In fact, the 19th century Scottish preacher Hugh Martin wrote of this subject. He said, if you propose to investigate the scriptural doctrine of the atonement of Christ, we must demand as essential to the state of the question that it be set forth within the category of his priesthood. There is simply no atonement divorced from the priesthood of Christ. And that is a key theme of the book of Hebrews. Turn to the book of Hebrews whose author frequently speaks of Christ as the great high priest of his people. Just a little survey here. In Hebrews 2.17, the author identifies Christ as a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So the atoning work of propitiation is set in the context of being a merciful and faithful high priest. Chapter 3, verse 1, calls him the apostle and high priest of our confession. Chapter 4, verse 14, says that in Christ we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And verse 15, who sympathizes with our weaknesses. We learn in chapter 5 that Christ didn't seize this priestly office to himself, but that verse 10, he was designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus is not a priest according to the order of Aaron. Jesus is not a Levite. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But with a change of covenant, chapter 7, verse 12, there is a change of priesthood. And so Jesus fulfills the Levitical priesthood by functioning according to the order of Melchizedek rather than Levi. This is a priesthood that Christ holds permanently, Hebrews 7.24 says, because, verse 25 says, he always lives to make intercession for his people. And chapter 8, verse 1, the church has such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 
say that he appeared as a high priest of the good things to come and entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle through his own blood. And so to consider the extent of the atonement of Christ apart from Christ's new covenant priesthood is to take the extent of the atonement out of context, if you will. The work of mediation that Christ accomplished can never be divorced from. Indeed, it can only be understood in light of his identity as mediator. And in particular, what you find is that from the very inception of the concept of priesthood, even in the Old Testament, the twofold priestly work of sacrifice and intercession are so inextricably linked that their objects are coextensive. They have the same extent, which is to say a, a priest, by definition, never fails to intercede on behalf of those for whom he has offered sacrifice. Neither does a priest intercede for those whom he has not offered. And so where this has a bearing on the discussion of the extent of the atonement is, Scripture teaches that the same is true for Christ, the high priest of the new covenant. He offers himself as sacrifice for the very same number for whom he intercedes before the Father. And Scripture explicitly limits the scope of Christ's priestly intercession to be particular rather than universal. And so, if Christ offers sacrifice for the very same number for whom he intercedes, and if he does not intercede for all without exception, but only for his people, then his atoning sacrifice is not for all without exception, but only for his people. That's the argument for this morning. And my aim with the rest of our time is to prove to you that that line of argumentation is biblical. And to get there, we'll divide our sermon into three parts. First, we'll need to consider the nature of Old Covenant priesthood. Second, we'll consider the nature of Christ's New Covenant priesthood. And then third, we will vindicate our conclusions from those observations against a key objection that is often raised against them. So, Old Covenant priesthood, Christ's New Covenant priesthood, and a response to an important objection. First, let's consider the Old Covenant priesthood and what the work of those priests has to teach us about the nature of atonement. We've already been introduced how Hebrews identifies Christ as the great high priest of his people, the mediator of the new covenant. Hebrews 12, 24 was a text I didn't read, but calls him Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Hebrews 8, 6 says he is the mediator of a better covenant than the old because the new covenant has been enacted upon better promises. And so by using this language, as well as the imagery of offering himself as a priestly sacrifice, entering through a greater tabernacle to sprinkle his own blood on the altar and, and more, by doing that, the New Testament identifies Christ as the antitype and fulfillment of all the Levitical priesthood and sacrificial system looked forward to. It, it borrows the conceptual framework of Old Covenant priestly ministry, and therefore it makes it foundational for understanding the atoning work of Christ. 
Now, of course, there isn't a one-to-one correspondence between the two. We already mentioned that the Levitical priests were designated according to the order of Aaron, Hebrews 7.11 says, while Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so we ought to expect some discontinuity between the two orders. But except for where those discontinuities are explicitly noted in the text. The old priests stand daily and never cease to offer sacrifice, whereas Christ offered once for all and sat down. Except where you have those glaring differences named, it's right to see a basic continuity between the high priesthood of the old covenant and Christ's high priesthood in the new. And so it means that it has much to teach us about about atonement in general, as well as Christ's atonement in particular. Now, what is a priest? Hebrews 5.1 tells us plainly what the fundamental duty of a high priest under the old covenant was. It says, For every high priest taken among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. That is to say, to represent sinners before God on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, which means that the way in which a priest represents the people to God is to offer sacrifices to God for their sins. But the high priest's duty of offering sacrifices was not limited to simply slaying the animal. In fact, his work was not complete until he had sprinkled the blood of the sacrificial animal on the altar in the tabernacle. And so, as I said earlier, the function of the high priest was twofold. It was both sacrifice and intercession. It was both slaying and sprinkling. And we see that throughout the opening seven chapters of Leviticus. Turn back to the book of Leviticus with me. Uh, These are where the details of the laws for the vicarious sacrifices of Israel These were the laws that that, uh, governed those sacrifices and the mediation of the priests. And the law prescribes both sacrifice and intercession. You see that right at the outset in Leviticus 1 and verse 5. He speaks of the priest who shall slay the young bull before Yahweh, or the worshiper rather, who shall slay the young bull before Yahweh. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. See the same thing in verse 11. He shall slay it on the side of the altar, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle its blood around the altar. We see it in chapter 3, verse 2. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and slay it at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle the blood around on the altar. And over and over again, chapters 3, 4, 5, 7, even 17, sacrifice and intercession, slaying and sprinkling. You also see this in Leviticus 16 concerning the Day of Atonement, the yearly pinnacle of the sacrificial system. And you will remember that that involved two substitutionary goats, the scapegoat and the goat of sacrifice. And when we consider the goat of sacrifice, Leviticus 16.9 says that the high priest was to slay the goat as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But the sacrificial death wasn't the end of the priest's work. Look at verse 15. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, 
and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So it is this twofold work, both the slaughter of the goat and the intercessory sprinkling of its blood that accomplished atonement for Israel's sins. And what we take away from this is that the two functions of priestly sacrifice and intercession are inextricably linked. The offering of the sacrificial animal on the bronze altar outside of the tabernacle was inseparable from the application of the animal's blood upon the golden altar of incense. The same priest brought the same blood from the altar of sacrifice to the altar of intercession. And more than that, we're told in Leviticus 16.13 that Aaron was to burn incense while he was in the Holy of Holies so that a cloud of smoke would cover the mercy seat. God says, if you don't do this, you'll die. And verse 12 says that the fire that would ignite the incense was to come from the coals of fire from upon the altar from before Yahweh, which were to be brought into the Holy of Holies from the outside. So do you see what the text is saying? Aaron the priest took hot coals from the altar where the sacrificial animal was burned and used those very coals to start the fire of intercessory incense. Sacrifice and intercession are inextricably linked. They are distinct functions, but they are inseparable functions as the priest makes atonement for the sins of the people. They are two sides of the same atoning coin. It could never be the case that a priest would offer a sacrifice on behalf of one sinner and then fail to intercede for that worshiper by not sprinkling the blood of the sacrifice on the altar. That would be to abandon the work of the priesthood. And so John Owen comments, to offer and to intercede. To sacrifice and to pray are both acts of the same priestly office, and both are required in him who is a priest, so that if he omit either of these, he cannot be a faithful priest for them. If either he does not offer for them or not intercede for the success of his sacrifice on their behalf, he is deficient in the discharge of his office. For whomsoever a priest was a priest, he sacrificed and interceded. Now, a necessary implication of that inseparability of sacrifice and intercession is that these two functions are coextensive. The scope of the priest's sacrifice is identical to the scope of his intercession. On the Day of Atonement, the people for whom the high priest would slay the goat are the people for whom he would sprinkle the blood of the goat. It is not the case that the high priest would, say, sacrifice the goat as a provisional atonement for the sins of everyone throughout the Gentile world and then only intercede with the sprinkling of blood on behalf of Israel alone. No, the scope of the intercession was identical to and grounded in the scope of the sacrifice. The high priest offered for everyone for whom he would intercede and he interceded for everyone for whom he offered. And so we learn from considering the old covenant priesthood that the priestly work was twofold. 
that it was the work of sacrifice and intercession, that those functions are inextricably linked so as to be inseparable, and that they are co-extensive. That brings us in the second place to consider Christ's new covenant priesthood. And we find these very same truths to mark the New Testament's teaching concerning the priesthood of Christ. And so let's go back to Hebrews, and we will start in chapter 9. The same twofold function, priestly function, in the ministry of the high priest of the new covenant. And as the high priest, Jesus, Hebrews 9.14 says, "...through the eternal Spirit he offered himself without blemish to God." So this high priest was both offerer and offering. He didn't need to multiply sacrifices day after day, Hebrews 7.27, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself, when he willingly laid down his life to, Hebrews 9.26, bear the sins of many. But in addition to offering himself as sacrifice, Our high priest also rose from the grave, has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, and entered into the heavenly tabernacle, where he always lives to make intercession for his people. Look at Hebrews 9, 24. It says, and I'm reading from the ESV here, which I think does a better job, for Christ has, on this one verse, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, that is, like the high priests of old would do, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so just as the high priest of the old covenant would appear in the presence of God in the holy of holies to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the altar, So also Christ, our great high priest, entered into the presence of God in the heavenly tabernacle to present his own blood before the Father. And what what is he doing there? What in the world is he doing if the atonement was perfect and finished and complete? Well, what is he doing? He is pleading as an advocate for his people the infinite merits of his perfect sacrifice. He is answering every accusation that our enemy brings against us on account of our indwelling sin. He answers those accusations with the wounds of his hands and his side. And he is praying to ensure that all the blessings that he has purchased by his death should in due time be effectually applied by the Spirit of God to everyone for whom he purchased them. Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. And not only do we find that twofold function evident in Christ's priestly ministry, we also find that same intimate link that inseparable connection between Christ's sacrifice and his intercession. So, for example, in Hebrews 9, 12, we read that through his own blood, Christ entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. It is on the basis of having already obtained eternal redemption through his own blood shed in his death that Jesus may now enter into the heavenly sanctuary to intercede for his people. 
It is on the basis of having offered himself without blemish to God, to use the language of verse 14, that he can appear in the presence of God to secure the effectual cleansing of believers' consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Just as it was with the high priest of Israel, the Messiah's blood shed as a sacrifice is the very same blood brought into the heavenly tabernacle of intercession. And that means the same thing in the new covenant as it did in the old. The scope of both actions is coextensive. Just like the Old Testament priests, Christ intercedes for everyone for whom he died, and he died for everyone for whom he intercedes. A second text that shows that connection is 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Go back to Epistle of 1 John, chapter 2. We addressed this uh, passage at length in our sermon on propitiation, showing how it's actually one of the best proof texts for particular redemption, contrary to what is so often supposed. But here, the Apostle John is writing to the churches of Asia Minor to warn them against false teaching and to exhort them to make war with their sin and to put it to death. But in the case that these believers do sin, as all believers do, sadly enough, John says, don't despair. Don't despair because, verse 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Though your life, Christian, may furnish evidence against you, And though Satan himself will, as it were, hurl accusations of unrighteousness against you in the court of heaven, yet you have an advocate whose blood cries louder than the enemy's accusations against you and who ensures that your faith will not fail and that you will be brought home at the last. What does Jesus say to Peter? Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when you once have turned again, not if you turn, not if my prayers happen to be effectual, but when you have turned, because my prayers are effectual, strengthen your brothers. Jesus' prayers for his own are effectual, and his prayers cry louder in the ears of the Father than your sins cry or that Satan's accusations cry. It's a famous story that Robert Murray McShane has written, maybe not a story, it's a famous line from Robert Murray McShane where he says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I wouldn't fear a million enemies. But distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. But on what basis does our advocate engage in this heavenly intercession? Why do his prayers cry louder than our sins? Verse 2 explains, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. You see, it's because Christ has effectually turned away the wrath of God from us once for all by his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross that his advocacy with the Father on our behalf is so sure. The best lawyer who doesn't have sound legal argument has no hope of making a righteous case before the judge. 
But the legal argument that our lawyer makes before the judge is the wounded side and then then the the nail-pierced hands and the holes in the feet and the perfect righteous life and the resurrection life that he promised he would raise up again by his own authority. Sinning believer, you need not despair of your salvation because the advocate who pleads for you before the Father in heaven is the one who has accomplished a perfect redemption on your behalf having extinguished in himself the wrath against the very sins you will commit this afternoon. Do you see? The intercession of Christ is grounded in and flows out organically from the sacrifice of Christ. They are inextricably linked. Christ intercedes for everyone for whom he is a propitiation, and he is a propitiation for everyone for whom he intercedes. One other text, back to Romans chapter 8. And you are familiar with it. In Romans 8, 28 to 39, Paul discusses redemption from beginning to end. In verse 29, he references the Father's election in eternity past. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. In verse uh, 34, he speaks of the death and resurrection of Christ. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised. In verse 33, he talks about justification. God is the one who justifies. And in verses 35 to 39, he talks about how nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, which is essentially saying that the believer will persevere through sanctification unto glorification. And so we've got the whole gamut of salvation here. And the question of assurance, of confidence before the throne of the judge is in the foreground. Because Paul asks in verse 31, if God is for us, who is against us? And verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? But the question is again, on what basis can believers be assured that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is in verse 34. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And I want you to see how Paul coordinates the death, resurrection, and intercession of Christ. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather was raised, and who also intercedes. Each one of those is the function of the unified priestly work of Jesus, which means that all three must be performed for the very same number as the others. And more than that, look at it, who also intercedes for us. Who are the us for whom Christ intercedes? Well, they're the same us as in verse 32, where Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So this is key. Those for whom Christ presently intercedes are the ones for whom the Father gave Christ over to death. And it could never be that Paul's arguing that the Father would give us the greater gift of his own beloved Son suffering under the wrath of men and God in order to win our salvation only then to fail to give us the lesser gifts of all that the Son purchased for us. 
If he gave us the greatest gift, Paul's argument is, in a suffering son in whom he was well pleased, how could he fail to give us any lesser gift which does not exclude all the blessings of salvation on the way to heaven? And it could never be that Christ would do the greater work in laying down his life for us, winning all the blessings of our redemption by enduring the agonies of divine wrath in his own soul only to fail to do the lesser work of interceding on our behalf, ensuring that we come to lay hold of all the blessings that he has purchased for us. And so here again, you see the inseparable unity between and coextensiveness of Christ's priestly work of offering and his priestly work of intercession. He intercedes for everyone for whom he died, then he died for everyone for whom he intercedes. He would never refuse to pray for someone in the presence of God if he had shed his blood for them. Now, if all of that is true, and I trust that you can see from the text of Scripture that it is, that raises a key question. Does Christ intercede before the Father on behalf of all people without exception or on behalf of the elect alone? If we were to say that Christ was in heaven praying to the Father for the application to all people without exception, including those whom the Father had not chosen to save, it would fit a universal atonement because sacrifice and intercession are coextensive. But it would also lead to two significant unbiblical conclusions. The first of those is that the Son would be asking for something that is out of accord with the Father's will. Why do I say that? Because in the inscrutable wisdom of God, not all without exception are elect. The Father has chosen some and not all to be the special objects of his mercy and grace in salvation. Then he has chosen to leave others in their deserved condemnation. Romans 9, 22 and 23 says that the potter prepares vessels of wrath as well as vessels of mercy. If Jesus interceded for all without exception, he would be asking the Father to save those that the Father has chosen from eternity not to save. The Son's will would be opposed to the Father's will. But that's impossible because the Father and the Son subsist in the identical divine essence, which means not just that they always happen to agree, but that they have the identical faculty of willing itself. The Son wills by the same hardware that the Father wills. Any suggestion that the Son would desire to ask for something out of accord with the Father's will undermines the doctrine of the Trinity. Second unbiblical conclusion that a universal intercession leads to is that the Father would be constrained to refuse the, the, to grant the Son's requests. If the Father has determined before the foundation of the world that he will not save the non-elect and the Son prays for their salvation, the Father will not answer those prayers. But can you even conceive of such a scenario? The Father refusing to grant the earnest prayers of his beloved Son in whom he is well pleased for the salvation of those for whom Christ shed his precious blood? It's unthinkable. 
Jesus would be before the Father saying, Father, I died for them. I I shed my blood for them. I paid for these sins that you want to punish them for now. Please save them and bring them to heaven. And the Father would say, no, son, I will not. The implications of a universal atonement are disastrous. I mean, not only would it drive a wedge between the will of the Father and the will of the Son, fundamentally undermining the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, but it demeans the worth of the blood of Christ in precisely the way that John Owen was talking about in that passage that I quoted at the beginning of the sermon. To say that the infinite merit of the blood of Christ is an insufficient ground for the Father to grant the Son's request. But Father, I shed my blood for them. Your blood does not satisfy me, Son. It's blasphemy. I I, I don't even like saying that. I don't even like giving voice to that idea. The Father always grants the requests of his son. Jesus himself says that in John chapter 11. He prays at Lazarus' tomb and says in John eleven forty one, 41, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. The father always hears the son. He always grants the request of his son. And when you add to that, that in Psalm 2, verse 8, the father tells the son, Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. It becomes even more unthinkable. The father told his son, promised his son, that if you ask, I will give you the salvation of the nations, and and that I will give you the ends of the earth. And when the son asks him, now he refuses. That's a God who goes back on his word. That's a God who cannot be trusted. And so it is a theological impossibility for Christ to intercede for those who do not finally lay hold of salvation. But since not all without exception will be saved, as we observed before, we must conclude that the Son's intercession is limited to the elect, to those who will finally come into possession of salvation. But besides that sort of theological argumentation, Jesus himself tells us who he intercedes for in his great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Let's turn to John chapter 17. In verse 19 of chapter 17, Jesus says, For this reason I sanctify myself. That's a curious comment. Jesus is as sanctified as you can get. What he's talking about, he's using the language of sanctification as the language of priestly consecration, as was delineated in the uh, book of Leviticus and Exodus 2 also, that when the priest would come to the Day of Atonement or when he would come to the tabernacle, he would have to consecrate himself, wear the linen ephod, make atonement for himself and his household, and so on. Jesus is showing us on the eve of his great culminating work of high priestly sacrifice He's saying, I'm coming before the Father to intercede before the ones that I'm going to die for tomorrow. He's engaging in this high priestly intercession. And in verse 9, he explicitly says, of those whom the Father had, had given him, he says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me for they are yours. 
So look at this. Jesus explicitly denies. Sometimes you hear people say, well, you got a lot of good arguments for why Jesus died for the elect, but you don't have any verses that say Jesus didn't die only for the elect, or here's a group of people Jesus didn't die for. Well, I, I've addressed that with you before. Some of you will remember that, and you can review the, uh, the sermon where I addressed John 10. But, but look at this. Here is an explicit negation. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. The ones who belong to the Father, who are yours. Those whom the Father had given to the Son. And who were they? They're the ones whom the Father chose in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. They are the elect, so named in Romans 8.33, which we read before. Here, upon the very precipice of his high priestly work of atonement, engaging in his high priestly work of intercession, Jesus explicitly refuses to intercede on behalf of the non-elect, but only for those whom the Father had given him. This is a particular, not a universal, intercession. And so to summarize, since the priestly work of sacrifice and intercession are inextricably linked, so much so that the extent of the two priestly acts are identical, coextensive. And since Christ says he does not intercede for the world, but only for his people, those whom the Father had given him, therefore, it is right to conclude that he offered himself as a sacrifice, not for all without exception, but for those whom the Father had given him. The extent of Christ's atonement, like the extent of his intercession, is limited to the elect. And so, the nature of old covenant priesthood, the nature of Christ's new covenant priesthood, teaches us that both the sacrifice and intercession of Christ are particular and not universal. But that brings us to a third point, a key objection that's raised against this argumentation. And it is the, an objection drawn from Jesus' prayer on the cross in Luke 23, verse 34, where he prays for his persecutors Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They say, look, here is the high priest in the midst of his priestly work of atonement, asking for the Father to forgive the sins to save those who are crucifying him. Now, it's obvious, they say, that not everyone Jesus prayed for was elect. So here's an example of high priestly intercession for the non-elect that would ultimately be ineffectual, that is, wouldn't lead to their salvation. This proves, they say, that intercession is not necessarily limited to the elect, and since the extent of priestly intercession is identical to the extent of priestly sacrifice, the atonement is not limited to the elect. That's the objection. What do we make of it? Well, in the first place, some commentators offer the response that it may not have been that Jesus was praying for the forgiveness of sins unto salvation, but simply that the Father would delay the judgment that their wickedness immediately deserved. It's almost like he was saying, Father, don't strike them down immediately for this. Be patient. I mean, you could expect that those putting to death the Son of God, the author of life, the King of the universe, would be disintegrated by divine justice even in their act. And so some commentators say, perhaps Jesus is saying, Father, don't do that. And while I think that's certainly a possible interpretation, I understand why those raising this objection wouldn't be satisfied with it as a response. And in fact, I think there are better responses. A second response is that we must observe that there is particularity even in this prayer. 
the most that can be said is that Jesus prayed to the Father to forgive those present at his crucifixion. It couldn't even be that he was praying for everyone who was involved in his crucifixion because Judas was at the heart of it. And he was, John 17, 12, the son of perdition. He was destined to perish eternally. Jesus pronounces woe upon him in Mark 14, 21 and says it would have been better if he'd never been born. Judas is the arch reprobate. Jesus certainly knows that the Father never intended to save Judas, which means that Jesus would not be praying contrary to the intention of the Father for Judas's salvation at his crucifixion. So at least some are excluded from Jesus' prayer. And remember, the burden of proof that a proponent of, the un- of a universal atonement must meet is universal intercession. If there's just one exception, as Judas certainly is, then the atonement and the intercession are not universal. But third, there is good reason to believe that Jesus' prayer was indeed effectual unto the salvation for everyone for whom he prayed in Luke uh, 23, 34. Why? Just several verses later in Luke 23, 47, we're told that when the centurion saw all that had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. In the parallel account, in Mark 15, 39, the centurion says, Truly, this man was the Son of God. This is indicative of the efficacy of Jesus' prayer. The Father forgave this Roman centurion and brought him to repentance and faith. When Peter preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, he addressed his hearers in Acts 2.23 as those who nailed Jesus to a cross and put him to death. In verse 36, he spoke of this Jesus whom you crucified. So these are people who were very much involved in the crucifixion and likely heard Jesus' prayer for their forgiveness while he was on the cross. And then in Acts 2.37, the next verse, Luke tells us that Peter's hearers were pierced to the heart. And in verse 41, that those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And in fact, in his next sermon in Acts chapter 3, Peter preached the gospel to those whom he says, chapter 3, verse 15, put to death the prince of life. In Acts 4.4, Luke records that many of those who had heard the message believed and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. I wonder if there were 5,000 people at the crucifixion. But 5,000 had come to faith in the intervening days. And eventually in Acts 6.7, we find that Luke says, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And so there is no reason to suppose that Luke 23, 34 is an instance of Christ interceding unto salvation for the non-elect, much less all people without exception, which is the burden of proof that must be met by those holding to a universal intercession. He was interceding for the elect because the Father, for those whom the Father had given him in eternity past, but who at that time had not yet come to faith. Ultimately, The universalist objection fails, and the argument for particularism from the unity of the twofold function of Christ's priestly ministry stands. Theology professor Dr. Robert Letham summarizes the argument well. He writes this Christ's role as high priest is a whole, it is one unified movement of grace towards humanity, 
whereby he takes our place in obeying the Father, in atoning for our sins and bringing us to God. He makes very clear that he prays for us besides dying for us. This is a dominant theme in his high priestly prayer to the Father in John chapter 17. In that prayer, he says to the Father that he does not pray for the world, but for those whom the Father had given him. His intercession is limited. He prays for his own and not for the world. It follows that his atoning death is intended for those the Father had given him and not for all in an indiscriminate fashion. If we see the intercession as particular and the cross as universal, we are positing a disruption in the heart of, high, of Christ's high priestly work. And so here is another argument, brothers and sisters, that safeguards the power and the perfection and the preciousness of the blood of Christ that makes it impossible for us to say that anyone for whom Christ's blood was shed can fail to be brought all the way home to heaven. It makes it impossible for that scenario that John Owen imagined to ever take place where souls for whom Christ died would be disowned by him at the throne of divine judgment. Instead, we who trust in Christ alone for righteousness may say with full assurance, Lord, your soul was heavy unto death for my sake. You did undergo for me that wrath that made you sweat drops of blood. You did bathe yourself in your own blood that my blood would be spared. You did sanctify yourself to be a priestly sacrifice for me as much as for the Apostle Paul or the Apostle John. Lord, your precious blood was poured out for me by stripes, by sweat, by nails, by thorns, by spear. You did remember me by name while you were hanging on the cross, and therefore I will never hear the words that you never knew me. You knew me then. You know me now. You knew me when the Father laid the burden of my sins upon your back upon the cross. Lord, I am an unworthy sinner, but your blood can never be despised by your Father. Justice did content itself with that infinitely worthy sacrifice, and so no one can bring a charge against God's elect, because Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Thanks be to God for the perfect redemption of Christ Jesus our Lord. And to you who sit here this morning still a stranger to that Savior, what could be keeping you from falling on your face and resting all of your hope, all of your confidence, all of your trust upon him, upon that perfect redemption? Let everyone that is outside of Christ this morning confess, own before a holy God that you have broken his law, that you're liable to divine justice, that you deserve eternal hell but that Christ has died and has risen and is now interceding for his people and holds himself open to you freely. Come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Trust in Christ. Cease from your own doings. Turn away from your sins as well as from your own good works. Trust entirely in his good works, and he will receive you, and that redemption will be yours. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would accomplish it in, in our midst, that you would save the lost. Father, that you would strengthen and, and sanctify those whom you have already rescued through the Spirit's regeneration. 
Lord, we, we thank you that at this moment, whatever our words, however they fail, however our life fails, we thank you that we have an advocate who, who pleads our case against our enemy before our Father, who has a perfect propitiation to plead, perfect righteousness, perfect wounds to argue in, in our favor so that we never despair of being brought to be there with you. We pray that you would speed the day of your coming, that you would come and enter into the kingdom of your own righteousness. Be glorified in the earth, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.